Amos, and we're up to Amos chapter 5, we'll be looking at the merciful hand of God, Amos chapter 5, and the merciful hand of God. Uh, if you can imagine tonight uh, that you're a certain wealthy man. Now that takes a lot of imagination for some of us. But a certain wealthy man who isn't preoccupied with his wealth. In fact, he's very generous. And he loves to bestow good things on others. He's also very powerful, but he's good-hearted and he chooses to use his power benevolently. And this man is married to a wonderful woman. Uh, he loves her very much. Uh, she's the apple of his eye, the woman of his dreams, someone he's committed to for a very long time. And so he lavishes all kinds of good things on her, and he lets her know just how much he loves her. So imagine how it must feel for him to find out that this woman on whom he has poured out all of his love has betrayed him and has united herself with another lover. In fact, he comes to find out that she's been uniting herself with a series of lovers. And you can imagine his devastation. His first reaction would be to feel absolutely betrayed. His heart is broken. There are moments of anger. He can't believe this is happening, and yet his love for her is undying in spite of her, his broken heart. And he does everything in his power to woo her back, to show kindness and mercy, to reach out to her. He's willing to forgive her, to restore their relationship, to call her back. Yet, she keeps on going. There are moments when she acts as if she really loves him. And she draws near to him in response to his wooing. And from time to time, after uh, being lured away by thoughts of others, by what seems a better way, she gets wrapped up in herself and she keeps falling back into an old pattern. And over and over again, the heart of this man is torn between frustration and anger and betrayal and an unending love and a desire for her to come back. He knows that the path that she's on is not fulfilling her. He knows that she's going to end up in a place of destruction. So he keeps on reaching out. He keeps wooing her. And uh, he yet is brokenhearted and he's frustrated. So the story would go on and on until finally... He's almost at the end of his rope and he says, if you don't come back to me and remain loyal, our marriage is doomed. You know that's a storyline that shows up all kinds of places. And you probably even know that storyline from someone that you know. But you know it's in movies, it's in books, it's on television shows. Perhaps you've experienced this and you're in the lives of friends or family and you understand all the emotions that could go with this situation. And we probably understand what it feels like to be betrayed. We also understand what it feels like to be in a relationship and at times 
find our attention being allured away, and although perhaps we haven't gone as far as this woman in the story that I've told here, but we know what it's like. But you know, this story is really not that of only human individuals. This is a story of God and Israel in the time of Amos. I think that one of the things that revolutionized a person's perspective concerning their walk with God is a realization that when we do something that displeases God, it's not so much of breaking a rule or a law, it's betraying someone who dearly, dearly loves us. And this is something to be seriously considered about our day-to-day lives. I believe that many Christians, if they have been Christians for a considerable length of time, end up basically following rules. I led a man to the Lord one time, and after he prayed, he looked up and said, Okay, Pastor, what are the rules? Well, that's kind of the idea some people have about living the Christian life. It's just about following some rules. Well, how do we evaluate how we're doing spiritually? Well, when we begin to understand the deep relationship that God has called us into and disobeying Him because or becomes something very personal, and we begin to understand what is at stake in our walk with God. You know, God is a compassionate God. He has a compassionate desire to rescue people, just like you and me, from the ravages of sinfulness, from the destruction of life without Him. And He planned to demonstrate to the world what life would be like uh, without Him. He called out a people unto Himself, the nation Israel. By the way, they were not marked out because they were better than anyone else. But because God chose them And he chose to place his affection on them. And he called them to be an example of a living relationship with him to the rest of the world. They would demonstrate how living with God is far more fulfilling and more fruitful, far closer to what God designed for us than living life without him. And from time to time in the history of Israel, they got it right. But now here in the time of Amos, the nation of Israel has been living the same way everyone else did for a long time. And so the book is really about 95% negative. See, I don't like negative things. Uh, The Bible has some negative things. Not for people don't like them. They'd rather hear more positive things. But God is a holy God, and He's a just God, and Israel needed to be judged, even as we often do as well. Now, I've mentioned before here that the book of Amos is really very stylized uh, literary work. It has all kinds of patterns of organization that draw our attention to different points. And you could say that the entire book is what is set up in what is called reverse parallelism. It simply means that there's a structure that the points 
that, that points to a core idea. You'll see this as we look at our study tonight. The passage we're considering here is Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. And it contains a, a core idea of the book. And it falls right in the middle of this passage. It's at the heart of what Amos is saying to the people of God. And this passage itself is set up as a reverse parallel structure with a center to which our attention is going to be pointed to. And as we explore this, I want us to capture a little bit of the heart of God, once again, and what He is calling us to, and what He is offering to us as His people. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 17, and then we're going to go back and look at the parallel sections to see the points that Amos is driving home, and that central focus that he is pointing to. Again, the tone is very harsh, it's very negative. But woven into this sermon are words of hope and mercy. And the cry at the core of this book is for a nation to wake up, to hear God, and to hear what He has to say. If we as a people of God do indeed inherit, in a sense, Israel's role, the church and Israel's not the same thing, but we are called the people of God as well. We're His children. And so we have a relationship with God. And we live in the midst of a dark world. And if we try to live this life without God, then the message of Amos comes home to us to consider how we are representing God in our world. How are we being liked? Now, what might God want us to hear in this particular passage. Notice chapter 5, verse 1. Hear ye this word, which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken her upon her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred, and that which went forth by a hundred shall lead ten to the house of Israel. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. Seek the Lord, and ye shall live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. Ye who turn judgment to wormwood, and leave off righteousness in the earth, seek him that maketh seven stars at Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into morning, and maketh the day dark of night, that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth, and the Lord is his name, that strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. They hate him that rebuketh the gate in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and you take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They 
take a bribe, and they turn aside the poor and the gate from their right. Therefore the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good. Establish judgment in the gate. It may be with the Lord of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord thus saith thus, Wailing shall be in the streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, and they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation to the wailing. In all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. Now if you just read that passage that we just did, you say, wow, well that's a, that's a lot to take in. How is that, uh, how does that work? How does that apply to me? Well, as we examine the parallel structure here, and uh, diagram that for you so you can kind of see which verses kind of go together, the beginning and the end of the passage go together, then you have two other sections that are parallel to each other, and then two more, driving us to a central idea, which is the core of these 17 verses. We're going to walk through this and trust that the Lord will help us to understand what He has in mind for the Israelites, but also for us this evening. Notice, first of all, lamentation and mourning. Lamentation and mourning. These passages are each a lament for the coming destruction. This was, has been the theme that's been repeated over and over throughout this book. Because of the sinful hardness of Israel's hearts, because of their unwillingness to listen to the voice of God spoken through His prophets and through all kinds of acts that He has done among them to try to get their attention, there's a judgment. There's a purging. There's uh, something like uh, that God is going to do it's on the horizon and there is going to be a time of absolute accountability for their behavior. And in that time, there's going to be much wailing and mourning. And so, we're going to look at these passages very closely here. Notice, first of all, the opening call to lament in verses 1 through 3. As I take against you even lamentation, Says the virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her plain. There is none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord, The city that went out by the thousand shall leave a hundred, and which that went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. And then you go down to verses 16 and 17, and you find a very similar uh, words here. Therefore the Lord God of hosts saith thus, Wailing shall be in the, all the streets, he talks about the lamentation to the wailing. And in verse 17, in the vineyards are we wailing. See, God is bringing judgment upon Israel. And so we have this passage bracketing the central call of the book. And it's a recognition that there's a time of mourning upon them. That word lament in verse 1 is actually used uh, kind of a funeral dirge. Uh, the idea was uh, a broken heartedness and sorrow and grief. The people of Israel being told that they were going to be in deep mourning over the destruction of their land. They, they have to come to believe that those 
marked out by God, no matter what they would uh, do, they would find God's favor, and yet somehow God will ignore uh, their sinfulness, and nothing bad is going to happen. Times that's come the way we think. We say, well, you know, I've done this. Yes, it's not right. It doesn't please God, but nothing's going to happen to me. Well, they think they have to, uh, all they have to do is tip their hat, so to speak, and from time to time do some external things that God's asked them to do. Some people say, well, if I just kind of, you know, uh, will go to church occasionally and I'll, I'll read my Bible occasionally and I'll do some things that are so-called spiritual and God's going to say, okay, you're great. God has warned them time and time again. And now he's saying there's a, an impending doom, a time for weeping and mourning. It's interesting, uh, within this call to weep and mourn is a prediction of the coming doom. It's a hint that, that's leading uh, to his mercy, actually. You see that in verse 3. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred, and which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. Even though he is angry with them, and has called them to repentance over and over again, even through this disciplinary judgment that's coming, he promises that they will not totally be wiped out. He will not advocate his covenant with them. He's going to keep his covenant. Yes, a thousand will be reduced to only a hundred and a hundred only to ten, but within that promise is the idea that there are going to be a faithful few who have not rebelled against him, a remnant who will recognize whose hearts have been made at least open to his calling. They're going to be preserved in the midst of all this. So we really kind of hear God's voice of mercy here. Then there's a second uh, parallel idea we find, and that is, seek me and live. You see this in verses 4 through 6 and verses 14 and 15. Now, in both of these passages, there's a, a, a resounding call to the people. You'll notice that there in verse 4, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Seek me, return to me. It's kind of both an offer of mercy and a call to repentance. But each passage has kind of a different emphasis. In verses 4 through 6, the command is twice given to seek the Lord. Not, don't seek Bethel. Don't seek Gilgal. What were Bethel and Gilgal? Well, they were places where they had set up idol worship. Don't go for that stuff. Don't go to Beersheba. Those are three places in the land of Israel that have been set up as alternative worship sites to Jerusalem. God had established the temple as the center of worship. They came up with three alternatives. Now when the kingdom was divided in rebellion against the monarchy and against God, the temple in Jerusalem, which was uh, in Judah, was inaccessible. It was undesirable for the ten northern tribes of Israel who had formed a kind of a separate kingdom. So they said, I, we don't want to go to Jerusalem. We've got to come up with our own place. And so they set up other places of worship that were, they called sacred sites from their history. Bethel, remember Bethel was the place where Jacob wrestled with God. And it's a place where God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. So it was a very important place. It was a sacred place. And it had great spiritual significance to them. 
uh, where God would have some had given life-changing power. So they thought, this is a good place, an alternative place. Beersheba was where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all experienced God's presence with them and was the base of operations from which they began to conquer and inhabit the promised land. And so that would be a place that would be very significant to them. You see, all these sites held kind of a sense of promise of God's redemptive, life-changing power, of His very presence with them, of an inheritance He had given them. But what happened? They had substituted a ritualistic adherence to history for really connecting with God. Now we too may try to recapture past glory sometimes and past experiences. Maybe we can remember something that was really great in our life. Maybe it was in, in our church or someplace where we had great service or something. And we, we kind of look back to that and we think, boy, if we could just do that again, that would jumpstart us. To, uh, and, and if we could just go back and be like that again, or we could just pay some sort of homage to my personal spiritual history. But we do this apart from a sense of repentance and connection with God. Israel kept flocking to these sacred sites, even though God had instructed them to worship at the Temple of Jerusalem. And their worship had become a matter of performing rituals in the hope that somehow reconnecting with that glory uh, they had lost. God calls for them to forsake the false, the ritualistic worship of the past and reconnect with the living God. He says, seek me and live. Now in verses 14 and 15, the emphasis is a little bit different. It's seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the relationship between these passages is one where Amos has drawn throughout this book, faith in God always changes us. You see, it's impossible to be connected to a living God and not be affected in the way we live. If we're going to be connected to God, it's got to have an impact on how we live from day to day. Verse 14 kind of sounds like some of the words that Jesus said in Matthew 6.33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Very familiar uh, theme there. Again, we're asked to find right living out of right belief. And so in the context of Amos, right living equates by treating others justly. And one of the characteristics of people who are connected with God is that they no longer live for themselves, but for God's glory and for the good of others. But in Israel's society, they had turned... Uh, they had been turned on its head and they were living for themselves. They're even exploiting others to benefit themselves. Now, if you go to the New Testament, you find in 1 John 1, verse 5, the Apostle John echoes this idea of connection with God and its outworking in our lives. John made a wonderful statement there. God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. You see, God is pure. He's holy. And then he says in 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. 
It's characteristic of kingdom people connected with God that they live their lives for the good of other people. They become like God who extends himself continually for the good of others. And so at the heart of this mercy, merciful call to return is to seek good. And then notice there, he promises, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as he has spoken. You see, the nation of Israel would say, God is with us. He is our God. Many times we say that too as believers, don't we? Well, God is, uh, is on our side. Sometimes we've even merged the idea with our politics. Well, we're, you know, God is on our side. Kind of a banner we love to wave. But what does God say here? He says here, if you will turn to me, repent and seek me and allow me to change your life and seek justice, I will be on your side, not just because you say so, but because your heart is right. Because you have sought me in order to live. Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. See, God is, is desiring to show himself strong to those who have the right heart. God is on the side of whose, uh, those people whose hearts are his. <coughs> These are the words that were given to King Asa by the prophet uh, Hananiah. And Hananiah, the uh, very next words were, Herein thou hast done foolishly. Same thing is happening in the day of Amos. But God calls his people to seek him, to seek justice. And he says, when you do that, I'm going to show myself strong to help you to be a people I've called you to be. This parallel passage opens up the merciful heart of God. He calls us to repent. He calls us to seek him. Even at the 11th hour before Israel's projected judgment, at the last moment, his call is, seek me, seek my righteousness, and you will live. Now, we're moving closer to the center of this text here. And on either side, there's a rehearsing of the sins of Israel. So we find here, thirdly, justice for Satan. We find this in verse 7 and verses 10 through 13. In verse 7, ye who turn judgment to wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth. In verse 10, they hate him that rebuketh the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. For as much therefore as your treading is upon the poor, and ye have taken from him birds of wheat, ye have built houses hewn of stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just and they take a bribe. They turn aside the poor and the gate from their right. Therefore the prudent shall keep silence in that time for he is an evil time. There's three things I want to point out to you in these verses here. And God is reminding them, Amos is reminding them where their hearts are. First, they ignored justice and righteousness. 
People matter to God. Can you believe that? You say, well, that's obvious. People matter to God. And you know, the way we treat people matters to Him too. This nation is turning a blind eye to the issues of justice and righteousness. So they ignored justice and righteousness. Secondly, he says, this is so bad that what few voices of righteousness there are, they are persecuted. Now those who speak for righteousness and justice are ridiculed. They're told, oh, be quiet. So the prudent man, the one who's trying to do right, keeps his mouth shut because the times are so evil. The voices for righteousness are squelched. Not only is the nation falling headlong into injustice, but the voices that we call them back are being shut down. Thirdly, he says, you're living lavishly on the backs of the poor. Now we saw this in our last message uh, that uh, they had even rigged the scale, so to speak. They manipulated the poor economically. And out of that, they created some very lavish lifestyles for themselves. But his word to them is, you're not going to live in your mansions. You're not going to drink the wine from your vineyards because judgment is coming. So that brings us to the central verses. Verses 8 and 9. They seem to almost be parenthetical in the flow of all of this. They just kind of seem to stick out, I believe, because they're about remembering who God really is. Verse 8 and 9 once again. In verse 8 and 9, it says, Seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion, and turneth the shadow of death in the morning, and maketh the day dark with night, and calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name that strengthen the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. This is the God with whom we have to do. Right in the middle of all this, the Lord, that is Jehovah, the covenant God, is His name. And He points to the fact that Jehovah is sovereign over all creation. He places the constellations in the sky. He brings darkness from light and light from darkness. He's the controller. He's the orchestrator of all that has been created. Then in verse 9, this one who is the Lord is the of the entire universe is also the righteous judge of all things. And so what Amos is saying here is at the core of this message, don't forget who you're dealing with. Don't forget who you're dealing with. And because we relate to God through faith, and He's not physically present, we can't see Him, and it's very easy for us in our daily lives to just kind of put God off to the side somewhere and forget Him. But we know in the back of our hearts and minds that we ought to pay attention to Him. But He just doesn't seem relevant to our day-to-day living. And therefore, it becomes easy for us to think nothing big is going to happen to us. We're not going to be judged. Israel had gone from generation to generation with this unrighteous mindset to the point of impending judgment, and 
Amos simply reminds them, He is the Lord. A number of years ago, there was a book written with the title Disappointment with God. I don't uh, I have not read the book. I've just read about the book. Uh, but the author was trying to deal with some questions that people asked. Is God unfair? Is God silent? And is God hidden? Well, in writing this book, he said, he spent a couple of weeks alone, and during that time he read the Bible cover to cover. And after reading it, he said, I encountered not a misty vapor, uh, but an actual person. It wasn't something mystical necessary. It was an actual person. He said it was a person who is unique and distinctive and colorful as any person I know. God has deep emotions. He feels delight and frustration and anger. God is not dispassionate about us as he will act. Sometimes when God shows up, he speaks righteousness and he calls us to repentance. Sometimes when God shows up, Things get destroyed. Judgment falls. And we forget that He is the sovereign Lord and Judge who has the right to call every one of us into account, particularly those of us who name the name of God. So what does this message mean to me? What does it mean to us? Well, I think first of all, particularly verse 7, there have been those who have used verse 7 to justify works salvation. Ye who turn judgment to work wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth. Unfortunately, they have not considered the entire message of Amos. And the condition of the people of Israel was that they were going through a form of worship that God had prescribed. They were offering sacrifices. They were going through a ritual. In other words, their practice did not equal their profession. They, the real danger is in a person who goes to church and sings the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Probably something we don't sing enough. It's a wonderful little song. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. The real danger is going and singing that song but outside church, living a life it is not honest. A life in which there is neither justice or righteousness. And that is the thing that God is condemning in the lives of Israel. And that's the thing He condemns in our lives tonight. Now I'm not saying that a living faith in Christ is not essential. It's absolutely essential to trust Christ for your salvation. But listen, if you make a profession of trusting in Christ and your life outside of church doesn't command the gospel to at all, then I may say that there's but one word to describe that. And it's a very harsh word. But the Lord Jesus is the one who used the word more than anyone else. He called the religious rulers of that day ye hypocrites. That was his word for you, not my word. That's his word. I didn't come up with It is brazen hypocrisy today, either in the pulpit or in the pew, 
when a profession is given and, a pro and, and uh, we make a, a much of the wonderful love and trust for Christ and then we go out and we live a life that condemns the very gospel we are supposed to be confessing. And that is hurting the cause of the gospel today. Christians who say, I am a Christian. I am a, I'm a believer. I, I trust in Christ for my salvation. But they don't live that. Great many Christians do not want to men, uh, do not want this mentioned because uh, they're very active in Christian work, but they're not active in living for the Lord in their business or their uh, social lives. There's another conclusion here, and it's closely related to the first. It says that we have a, to measure our sense of faithfulness against our self-absorption. The organizing principle of life for most of us, and most of the time is ourselves. What am I doing? What is happening to me? And the majority of the time I spend thinking of myself, reassuring myself that when I'm done there's nothing to spare for the needy. Uh, six billion people, seven billion people in this world and I can only muster a few thoughts for one, me. Everyone else is a minor character who exists to make my story better. That's the way a lot of people are living their lives. And the way we have to measure our sense of faithfulness to God is in contrast to that. As we live for ourselves, the call is to follow the sovereign Lord, and that's muted. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 19, the second half of that verse says, Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It reminds us of the incredible price that God paid in His relentless love to draw us out of our sinfulness and into a wonderful freedom of relationship with Him. And I think the resounding fact that comes down to all of Scripture is Jesus is Lord. And the single organizing principle of my life must not be me, but the Lord. I need to organize my life around Him. And Amos is calling the nation of Israel to reorganize their lives around the sovereign lordship of Jehovah. In the language of the New Testament, Jesus is Lord. Uh, to what extent am I willing to say that this story is not about me, but about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, God invites us to participate in the grandest story ever, the story of the Lordship of Christ. And we get to be characters in His story. That's so much richer, so much more fulfilling than the story that's just about me. And so I trust that through all this we can see that this is what Amos was trying to get to the people of Israel and what God has in store for us here tonight. It's not about us. It's about God. 
Are we organizing our lives around Him, or are we just organizing ourselves around our lives around ourselves? Let's pray.